everyone, welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. It's your host, Stephanie Miller. If this is the first time you're listening to the Killer Kind, I hope you will subscribe wherever you're listening and join us for all future episodes. I can't believe we're already in August, guys. How did that even happen? Seriously. But if you know me, then you know that I'm super excited for fall. Fall is my favorite time of the year. I'd put out my pumpkins in fall decor on August 1st if my husband would let me. (laughs) But speaking of fall, though, I've been posting different polls and stuff on the podcast Instagram page, trying to get to know you guys better, because I have some ideas for some fall and winter holiday related episodes, like special Halloween episodes put out each week in October. If that's something you guys might be interested in, then I have a couple of Christmas themed episode ideas for December. Just be sure to check out the podcast Instagram at killer.kind.pod so you can be a part of what's to come here on The Killer Kind. But all right, guys, let's go ahead and jump into this week's case. I'll give a slight warning that this episode is the one of the first ones where we talk about some pretty graphic stuff. This case does involve dismemberment, and I will have to discuss that briefly so you can kind of follow the case a little bit better. But at the same time, just know this is a true crime podcast and there will be episodes that we will be that will be more graphic than others in the future. So just keep that in mind. That being said, this week we'll be discussing the murder of Gregory May. Greg May married his wife, Sheila, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, back in November of 1965. The two went on to have two children, Don and Shannon. And Greg was a tattoo artist at the time, and he would end up owning two tattoo shops and become known as one of the fastest and most talented in the Midwest at the time, when tattoo artists were few and far between. He even taught his wife, Sheila, how to tattoo, and she became very good herself. Now, although the two divorced in 1978, they remained good friends. I know this story is more about Greg, but I did want to discuss Sheila because she does play a big role in this case and in the life of Greg. So I wanted to give you a little backstory on Sheila too, just because I think she's a pretty awesome person. Um, After the divorce, Sheila and her two kids moved to Southern California. The entire family stayed in touch with Greg visiting pretty often, and Greg and the kids talked pretty much several times a week, every day, maybe even at times, over the phone. But like I mentioned, Greg taught Sheila how to tattoo. Now, while in Wisconsin, she worked at Greg's tattoo shop, tattooing like tough guys and sailors who wanted American eagles and snakes and cartoon characters and tributes to mom. (laughs) So, She became very good at this, at tattooing, and she actually became one of the first female tattoo artists in the U.S. And after moving to California with her kids, she continued her career in tattooing, where she became the originator of the concept of permanent makeup. Now, eventually, Sheila even had celebrity clients coming into her salon for tattooed eyeliner, eyebrows, and even lip color. She's quoted in the Washington Post saying rock stars would come to her for tattooed eyeliner because theirs would run during their shows and they'd get real sweaty and stuff. And she even said some pretty famous um, or pretty popular soap opera stars would come to her for tattooed on lipstick so they wouldn't worry about their lipstick getting smudged during scenes, which is 
crazy. But just to name drop, she said that she tattooed James Brown's eyebrows in 1991. Just one of the celebrities. She said she doesn't really mention celebrities' names because she doesn't want to give it away that they've had this done. But James Brown is one that has made that public and he said you know he don't care that people know (laughs) so needless to say she made a pretty big name for herself in Los Angeles and she is pretty awesome and we like Sheila (laughs) so back to Greg now for Christmas 1999 Sheila Greg and the kids got together to celebrate the holiday this is when Greg told Sheila that he was planning on moving to Bellevue Iowa He told Sheila that he was ready for a slower-paced town and that the area had a lot of American history, which he loved. American history was really a big part of Greg's life. He was a huge Civil War memorabilia guy. He actually collected artifacts and antiques and um, memorabilia of any kind from the Civil War or from, you know, the 19th century. He was huge history buff. So moving to this town, it had historical significance. It had, you know, the kind of vibe that he was looking for. And like I said, Greg was a tattoo artist too. So it's kind of funny that he collected Civil War artifacts or Civil War um, antiques and was also a tattoo guy. Because to me, sometimes those two don't go together. Like one's kind of the, you know, rough guy, you know, motorcycles, tattoos, and then you got, you know, the Civil War guy who's a little more like laid back into like history and, you know, I picture like a history teacher type guy. And and this is kind of what he looked like. Greg was at the time uh, around 1999, he was about 54 years old. And he had graying hair, he had a big bushy mustache, and he had bright blue eyes. And so to me, that screams history teacher not so much rough and tumble tattoo guy. And his friends kind of did describe him as the more laid back, you know, vibe where he was, he saw the good in everyone. He was pretty laid back, but he had a passion for tattooing and a passion for Civil War collections. Now back to Bellevue, Iowa. Bellevue was about a three and a half hour drive west of where he lived in Wisconsin. And to give you more of an idea of where we're talking about, Bellevue sits just barely to the west of the Illinois state line, right on the Mississippi River. It really is a town right out of American history book. The homes are old, colonial style, sitting right on the water of the Mississippi. It's a very cute, quaint town from what I've seen in pictures. It's so cute. (laughs) Now, Now, that being said, the town was pretty small, and they didn't really care for outsiders, Bellevue was one of those towns where you had your locals and you had your non-locals. They were definitely kind of divided. And in 1999, the population started to grow significantly. It's kind of unclear why, but just like Greg, the people who moved here during this time were looking to get out of big cities. For example, like Chicago, that was about three hours from Bellevue. And all of these people were just kind of out for what Greg was, just a slower-paced life, you know, something with a little history and just a beautiful place to live that wasn't in this, in these big cities that surrounded this area. And that's definitely what Bellevue, Iowa offered. So Greg May moves to Bellevue, Iowa. Now at this point in the story, I want to introduce you to three new characters. Not to make them seem like 
characters in a movie or anything, but basically there are three people that are in Greg's life during this time in Bellevue. And the reason I say it like that is because I have not been able to figure out when these people all came into his, into the picture. Let me tell you who they are and I'll explain. So first I'll mention Greg's friend, Doug. Doug DeBruin is a guy that is a guy that from what I've heard has been a friend of Greg for about 30 years at this point. However, again, it's not clear if Doug and Greg moved to this town together or if one of them moved here first. But either way, insert Doug. Who is Doug? Doug DeBruin is a tough guy. He's a little rough around the edges, but seems to be a good friend to Greg. Now, if you look into this story on your own, you may see different nicknames for this guy. In one article, for example, I read his nickname was Moose. But then in another article, they said people called him Duke. So for argument's sake, I'm just going to call him Doug here. But if you kind of dive into it for yourself, you will see different nicknames for this one guy. So like I said, Doug was a little rough around the edges, a different kind of person than Greg. Although they did share, you know, their passion for tattooing and, and they were similar in that sense. Greg's son, Don, actually told a reporter a few years later that the family didn't really like or trust this Doug guy. They just thought he was trouble. But Greg always saw the good in everyone, like I mentioned earlier, and he kept a good relationship with Doug despite their different personalities. And the two were always seen around town, hanging out, hanging out at one of the local cafes in the morning for breakfast and one of the local bars in the evenings. Good friends, just definitely different souls. Now let's talk about the new woman in Greg's life, Jan Buman. They started dating not long after Greg moved to Bellevue, and the two hit it off pretty quickly, and they seemed to be destined for a long, happy future together. And there is one more person that enters Greg's life during this time, and that would be the girlfriend of Greg's good friend, Doug DeBruin. And her name is Julie Miller. She and Doug ended up renting out the basement of Greg's home around the 1st of January 2001. Jan told police later that she did not like Doug or Julie. Jan said she did not trust the two, specifically Julie, but Greg, again, was just a super nice guy and was willing to open his home to the two of them to give them a place to live. Now, let's back up for a minute. A few months prior to January 2001, Greg and Jan started talking about moving to Florida together. The two were kind of sick of this, you know, Midwest, these Midwest winters and were wanting to move somewhere warm, like Florida. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, when I read this part of the story, it kind of gave me chills a little bit and reminded me of last week's episode. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend go back and listen very interesting case. Um, but in that story, this guy, Charlie, had called his mom saying that he was going to go to Florida. He wanted to be somewhere warm. So when I read that in this case, I just thought, mm, this cannot be good. Um, and sure enough, things kind of take a turn for Greg around this time. Anyways, the two wanted to move to Florida, and Greg was pretty serious. He even grabbed a Florida real estate brochure one day and gave it to Jan and told her to find them a house. So, at the start of January 2001, the two pretty much had their mindset on moving to Florida. They were just kind of putting things in place and putting things together for that move. But like I said, Doug and Julie ended up renting the basement out of Greg's home, and 
to put it in perspective for you, Jan did not actually live there with Greg and the two others, but she did stay there pretty frequently. So she knew the ins and outs of this house and, and knew Greg and his friends pretty well. Now, on January 11th, 2001, Jan had stayed with Greg for three days prior, where they had spent that time making more permanent plans for their move to Florida. Later in the day, she said that she was going to go run home and just kind of get some clean clothes and, you know, just kind of regroup, and then she'd be back later. And Greg said that during this time, he was going to go to his chiropractor, who was also one of his good friends, and the two did end up actually discussing Greg's move and, you know, hey, I may not see you again because I'm probably going to move before my next appointment. So, you know, just making plans. So, and, and more than one person knew that he was making these plans to leave. Now, Jan said that she had planned to meet back up with him around 8 p.m. this night. So that's what she did. She drove back to Greg's house around that time and parked in the back of his house like she always did. And to her surprise, the back door was locked. Now, Greg had said that he would leave this door open for her. Um, and so she rang the doorbell and there was no answer. Thinking it's probably just some sort of mis- miscommunication. So she went around to the front of the house and knocked on the door. But what she could see through the window, there was a shade partially drawn. She could still kind of peek through and see most of the house, but but only see about halfway up, if that makes sense. Um, and to kind of give you an idea, she said that she could see in the house, and she said that she saw what looked like Greg from the back. He was sitting, but she could only see him from the waist up. She said he was sitting, not moving, in a kitchen chair, legs crossed, and his hands on his lap. You know, just very casual. But Jan said that she saw what looked like Doug's girlfriend, Julie, and and she was pacing around the kitchen, kind of like she was nervous. And she was wiping her hands off with something, but Jan could not quite tell what that was. And with no one answering the door, Jan went down to the Frontier Cafe, and she ordered some food and a drink, and she ends up calling the house, and the answering machine picks up. And she basically just thinks he's mad at her or, you know, kind of ignoring her. So she says, why won't you answer the door? You know, are you mad at me? Like, what's wrong? And with no callback, she ends up stopping back by the house after she leaves the cafe. But this time she saw nothing. And she saw no one through that partially drawn window shade. But she did hear, like, thumps and crashes from within the house. Now, like I said earlier, she kind of thought maybe he was mad at her or, like, something was wrong. So she said it sounded like, kitchen doors being slammed or something so in her mind she was thinking he's got to be mad at me or something's got to be wrong so in order for him to be like stomping around the house and slamming doors and stuff she was thinking this was Greg but she did end up calling the property manager George Volrath I hope I said that right and asked if he would let her in the house and he obviously had to decline because she did not live at that residence so she was kind of stuck with just kind of hoping that he would call and just waiting to hear back from him. Now, this all happened on January 11th, which was a Thursday. And by that Sunday, she had still not heard from Greg. So she tries calling the house. And who picks up the phone? Julie, Doug's girlfriend. Julie answers and she tells Jan that Greg had gone to Chicago just out of the blue. And Really didn't get much of an explanation from her on that. And so she hung up. And so it's not clear if she bought that or if she just was still thinking he's really mad at me. You know, like, why did he just up and leave? Maybe he doesn't want me anymore. You know, I don't I don't know what her thoughts were in, during that time. 
But either way, I'm thinking that she still was just waiting on a phone call from him. Just surely I'll get an explanation or something. But by that next Wednesday, she had still not heard from Greg. So she ends up driving back over to his house. And when she arrived, the house was completely empty. There was no sign of Greg, no sign of Doug or Julie, and no one was anywhere to be found. And also the house had been cleaned out. It was completely empty. Now, obviously, that was very odd. And us listening to the story, you listening to the story, I'm sure your wheels kind of start turning. What happened to Greg May? Did Julie and Doug kill him? That's clearly what we're thinking. And at this time, it's clear that Jan was thinking probably something similar or something along those lines. Like, surely he didn't just up and leave. Surely that's not what happened. And with the weird way that she saw Julie acting in the kitchen that night, you know, something kind of had to be related. Now, you're thinking, what's the motive, though? Why would they kill this guy? What, you know, Doug and him have been friends for 30 plus years. You know, what's the issue? Well, let me tell you, (laughs) I specifically kind of left this information out earlier. If you remember, I told you that Greg collected Silver War antiques. These were not just any antiques. These items that he collected were worth up to like thousands of dollars. One artifact he had, I believe was a sword from the Silver War, was worth $30,000. So, ding, 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 red flag, right? But you're thinking, like, why, why would Doug do this? He's known this guy for 30 years. He knows he has all these things. Why would he do it now? Insert girlfriend Julie. <laughs> Julie, new to the scene, new to the group, I'm thinking she might have been a little money hungry. That's just me. That's where my brain's going right now. And one other thing I, I left out as well earlier Back when I said that Jan told Greg that she didn't trust Doug and Julie, she specifically said, I don't trust Doug. But Greg actually replied and said, I don't trust that Julie. Okay, so before we kind of hang these two out to dry, let's let's keep going. <laughs> so basically, to give you an idea of this town, we need to go back to the town. So Julie's hands are kind of tied. She doesn't know what happened to him. She, I think, does report him missing. And two, a couple weeks go by and Greg's son, Don, is finding it weird that he can't get a hold of his dad. He hasn't heard from him. And that's just not like him. So he starts to worry. And, of course, Greg's ex-wife, Sheila, thinks the same thing. So they both kind of start calling the local police and trying to get them involved. And they get some pushback. And you're thinking, what? Excuse me? (laughs) Why are we getting pushback on this? This is something that should be taken serious. However, like I said earlier on in the podcast, this town was a little weird when it came to people that were not from there. The non-locals, the outsiders, if you will. They were crazy. (laughs) They basically did not want to investigate this. They thought that he just ran back to wherever he came from. We don't need to have our local police taking time out of their day and time out of, you know, whatever else they're doing to focus on this. It's going to take a lot of man hours, a lot of, you know, police pay and time that that they just don't need to worry about. Actually blew my mind when I read that. I was like, are you kidding me? 
this is the issues that we have in towns like this that don't want to put time and effort into people that they don't care about, which is crazy. It was only after like a public sit down with the in like the town hall that they all decided that, you know, it's time to investigate. And it really was with the push of Sheila, Greg's ex- ex-wife and his family, along with Jan, who was was giving them a hard time about it and just kind of pounding them to really stay focused on this and help them out and help them find Greg. And ultimately, they did. They kind of broke down and decided to really focus on it and and take it serious because even the mayor, the mayor at the time was Virgil Murray, and he was even quoted saying, whether we know him or not, he's our neighbor. So finally, they come to their senses and decide to investigate this thing. And during the investigation, they're really, you know, kind of not really getting any leads. They're, you know, they're calling around, you know, yada, yada. Now, April 2001, a couple months after, a few months after Greg goes missing, a retired trucker named Ronald Telfer pulled into a Kearney, Missouri truck stop at the intersection of Interstate 35 and Highway 92, northeast of Kansas City, about a five and a half hour drive from Bellevue. Now, Telfer was curious about something. About a month earlier, he saw a white plastic bucket apparently abandoned in the back parking lot of this truck stop that he was at. And he bent down to pick it up and he saw it was filled with hardened concrete. Now, come April, he's back at this same place and he remembered that bucket. So he went back to it to see if it was still there. And sure enough, this five gallon bucket full of concrete was still there. So he gets out of his truck and he tries, you know, slamming it against the pavement, trying to get it to break up and see, you know, is there something in it? You know, what, you know, to see what's going on with it. And a strong odor wafted toward him. Later, Telfer would relay to a packed courtroom. Let me stop. Graphic warning. This is kind of where it starts to get a little rough. So when he breaks the concrete, the top of it cracked off and he saw something that looked like meat and skin something that also smelled very bad. Thinking at the time it was just animal remains, he slid the hunk of concrete out onto the pavement and took the bucket home to use for feeding his pigs. Months later, on August 27th, a construction worker named Franklin Ray Dean maneuvered his truck through the same lot. Dean saw the cylinder of concrete blocking his path, the same one that Ronald Telfer saw back in April. Now, Franklin got out of his truck and jumped down to move this cylinder of concrete out of his way, and when he did, he saw hair and what looked like a human skull protruding from the top. It would be confirmed later that this was, in fact, a human skull that belonged to Greg May. So Franklin's discovery would set in motion a series of events that would span over five years in four states. The investigation in the town had already began at this point, but like I said, it had taken some time to get going because of the people in Bellevue that didn't really want to get involved with it. Even though police could tell some of the citizens in the town weren't happy, they still continued the investigation. And when that finally got started, they figured out pretty quickly that they needed to track down this Julie and Doug DeBruin. They were obviously the two that last saw him alive. But like I said, they had taken off right after his disappearance. So it did take some time to track them down. 
And at some point during the investigation, one of the investigators got a call from a lady up in Illinois. She said that they that she saw some silver war pieces that she knew were pieces from Greg May's collection. She saw that they were coming up for an auction at the Rock Island Auction Company there in Illinois. The police had actually acquired a list of Greg's belongings that had been taken from the house when he when the place was emptied back in January and the investigation had started. It kind of just started off as stolen property and, you know, just a missing person. So that list also included, though, the antiques that friends and family knew that Greg had collected. So this picked the investigation back up, and it was a huge lead for police. So they contacted the seller of this antique, and the seller was Mary Clark, I'm guessing is how that is pronounced but anyway she said the items were her uncle's let me back up mary clark was not actually the one that answered that was just the seller's name listed every time police or like even the auction company would call they would get a julie johnson she was the one that said that she was handling the auction for her mother now who do we think julie johnson is of course julie johnson is actually in fact julie miller Doug DeBruin's girlfriend. This told police that Julie and Doug definitely know what happened to Greg, and it wasn't good. The two were picked up in Flagstaff, Arizona in April 2001. At the time, they didn't have much on the two, except for they knew they were selling some of Greg's property and prized possessions. But luckily, when Franklin Dean found the human skull, they put the two and two together and determined that Greg May was in fact killed and his body had been dismembered. Ultimately, this case did go to trial. It was determined that Greg and Julie had involvement. At the trial, Doug was actually the one on trial, and he was painted as the mastermind. Julie ended up testifying against him, of course. Don't they always? One partner in crime is always going to crumble. Keep that in mind, people. Don't trust anyone, especially if you're going to do stupid stuff like this. Let me stop and say you should never do something like this. But if you're doing bad things with bad people, they're not going to have your back in the long run. Just keep that in mind. Anyways, during the trial, Julie said that Doug was the one that killed Greg, even though she did take part in helping dismember his body. And she also helped dump body parts along their travel to Arizona. She said the torso was weighted down and dumped in Illinois, and the other body parts were scattered north of Bellevue along Highway 52. It's reported that they dumped most of the body parts in the Mississippi River as well. We know what had happened to his head that was placed in the five-gallon bucket with concrete. During the trial, while she was telling this horrific story of what had happened to Greg, she said it was such a calm demeanor, showing almost no emotion. It was just horrible to to see how calm she was describing what happened and like I said Doug was painted as the mastermind his criminal history was brought to the forefront his own son was even quoted in the media saying that he deserved whatever he got because he was a terrible man and in the end Doug DeBruin was ultimately convicted of the crime of murdering Gregory May now you're wondering what happened to Julie yeah I was too when I first read this I was like why why do I not see Julie's name as convicted as well? You won't because she didn't get charged with murder. 
The only time she served was three years for transporting stolen property across state lines. And you're like, excuse me? (laughs) That can't be it. Well, unfortunately, that's it. At the time, 2001, totally different time. I know it was a different world back in 2001. At the time, there was no law in place in Iowa where it was a crime to dismember or hide a body to conceal a crime. Outrageous. How is that even possible? Luckily, it's not anymore. Luckily, in 2007, a state law was enacted making it a felony to dismember and dispose of a body. Greg's case was the reason for putting that law into place. But unfortunately, Julie Miller never got to suffer those consequences. She is, in fact, a free woman today. Now I want to give my thoughts on the case. They may not be your thoughts, and that's fine. Like I always say, I would love to hear what you think of the episode this week and every episode, in fact. You can comment on this week's episode post on the Instagram page at killer.kind.pod, or you can send me a direct message there, or you can even email me at killerkindpod at gmail.com. But here are my final thoughts, if you will. I believe Julie Miller was the mastermind. I don't buy that Doug, his friend of 30 years, just randomly decides to kill him for money one day. I just don't buy that. Now, he clearly went along with it, and he's definitely at fault, and he should be behind bars for life like he is. But I believe she is the one who put this this idea into action. I believe she's at fault 100%. And there is no reason she should have not been charged with murder as well. But unfortunately, there's not much we can do about it now. And thankfully, there is a law put in place now for people like her. But that's it, you guys. That's the conclusion to the story of Gregory May. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you have any cases you want me to cover in the future, there's a case suggestions tab on the podcast website at thekillerkindpod.com or you can always reach out to me on the Instagram page or through email like I mentioned earlier but thanks for everything guys can't wait to see you back here in two weeks I'll talk to you soon bye